You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. We live in an age where humility is often praised, but ego is more often rewarded. We talk a good game when it comes to humility. We like the idea of selfless people. And we praise them publicly. We'll give rewards and awards, excuse me. We'll give awards and banquets and we'll honor people who serve the public or who serve a cause. And that's well, it's good, and it should be done. But we reward people frequently who manipulate circumstances who take advantage of other people, and who prop themselves up to get ahead in life. We reward them with promotions. We reward them with bonuses. We reward them with status. We reward them with office. We expect businesses to give a little bit to charity, but we also expect them even more so to be cutthroat. Because you've got to be cutthroat if you want to survive. People compete, someone wins, someone else loses. Survival of the fittest. And the fittest are the ones who can work the system to get ahead who seek their own interests, and who set things up to sustain their own interests. We praise humility. We reward ego. And it's gotten a bit cliche in some instances and some professions. We tell lawyer jokes, don't we? Because we expect them to be less than upstanding at times as a profession. It's not always true. You know, some t- plenty of attorneys with integrity But the jokes are there because in so many people's experience, you've got a group of people who have developed a reputation for seeking their own interests. We have gotten to the point with our politicians where we expect nothing but ego, nothing but self-advancement, and no humility whatsoever. We elect people who are consumed with themselves and consumed with their agenda. Not people who have the interest of the other at heart. This is nothing new. The ancient world was filled with power players who made power plays. It's filled with people who talked a good game and orchestrated things for their own benefit all the time. The difference between us and the ancient world is people in the ancient world never pretended to appreciate humility. Never. And in the midst of that, we are a people who worship a God born 
in a manger. Nothing about a manger says power play. Nobody who has any sort of privileges puts their baby in a feeding trough. And that requires us as the church to kind of step back and say, if we really believe that Jesus is God, and if we really believe that Jesus is fully human, and this is the sort of God He is, the sort that's born in a manger, if we really believe that, then we've got to ask, what is it that He's trying to reveal to us about what it means to be God and what it means to be human? And how is that different from everything else we hear in the world? Mostly everything. And the thing that we discover when we come to the manger, the thing that we discover when we come to the feast of the nativity, when we behold the incarnation, the thing that we find is that Jesus reveals a different way of being God to give us a different way to be human. A way that stands in contrast with everything out there. Jesus gives us a different way of being God. This is the bottom line this Sunday. Hold on to it. Jesus reveals a different way of being God so that we can experience and find and discover and be given by Him a different way to be human. So what kind of God is Jesus? And how does He reveal a different way of being God? Luke 2 tells us about a God who pays attention to the lowly. Luke 2 tells us about a God who cares about the poor. Luke 2 reveals a God who rejoices in caring for people who can do nothing to help Him. Now here's the thing to notice. In the ancient world, there were a lot of options for God. Greeks and Romans and other ancient Near Eastern gods, like there were a lot of options. Literally, thousands. From Zeus to Asclepius to Athena, you get a lot of God options. And you can worship. Take your pick. Pick a handful. Pick more than one. In every instance, the pagan gods in the ancient world are never portrayed in terms of humility. They never are portrayed as caring more about someone else than they do themselves. In fact, typically, they're capricious characters who sort of disguise themselves frequently to go and take advantage of people for kicks. Like, this is the kind of person, this is the kind of God that is honored or revered or worshipped in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire, where Jesus is born, the standard stereotypical posture of the gods is let's have some fun who can we mess with who can we take advantage of who can serve us who can provide us with wine and ambrosia and you won't be surprised to find out that the way that the gods were portrayed correlated with the values 
of the culture. So the elite had no problem whatsoever taking advantage of the poor so that their status could be increased or their wealth. No problem whatsoever. I mean, after all, this is the way the world works. This is the way the gods are. Why not us too? And one of the things we find as we, as we kind of look at the history of religions is that the way you see God is typically the way that that's the, that's the pattern of your ethics. So if your God is a jerk, chances are you will be too. If your God is humble, guess what you should be? And so we come to Luke 2 and we come to Mary. And Mary is a, a young girl in a very precarious situation. Because in the ancient world, young girls who find themselves pregnant and they're not, when they're not married are in very precarious situations. So what does she do? She leaves town. Because that's what you do in that situation. I'm not sure we always think about why we go from the birth of Jesus being foretold by an angel to Mary skipping town, but there's a logical connection there. Immediately, she goes to her cousin's house in another area, in another place, most likely to avoid all of the public scorn and shame that would be heaped on her. Perhaps to preserve her life. When she arrives, she is greeted joyfully. Elizabeth is there, and if you've already been reading the Gospel of Luke, you know that Elizabeth is married to Zechariah. They are the parents of John the Baptist, so this is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. And Elizabeth's a little further along than Mary. And Mary comes in, and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy at God's Messiah. And Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? And so you've got a little girl in a precarious situation, likely living at subsistence level on the verge of poverty, if not deeply in it. And God has looked with favor upon her. That's what she'll say when she sings in a moment. The Creator of all things. The One who speaks and brings stars and planets and trees and birds and worms into existence. The One who upholds all things by the power of His will. The One who loves what He has made and is committed to its redemption. That One, Mary says of Him, has looked with favor on the lowliness of His servant. Nobody in the ancient world looks with favor on lowliness. I read a book earlier this year called Paul and Humility. And the author went through and just charted out attitudes in the ancient world towards humility and lowliness. And guess what the attitudes were? They were not favorable. The language of 
humility or lowliness, they're really interchangeable in the ancient world, is basically associated often with slaves. The elite are not lowly nor are neither lowly nor humble, the slaves are. The poor. People who have nothing. Mary knows where she she knows in which strata of society she lives. And yet she finds, and it is affirmed by angelic testimony and by the testimony of her cousin's preborn baby. God is at work. God has looked with favor on the lowly. And so she sings praises to his name. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked with favor on the lowliness of His servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. When you think about words like that in the ancient world, the mighty do not do great things for the lowly. The mighty do not act for the advantage of the lowly. Yes, occasionally you might find exceptions. Like a a wealthy owner might set one of his slaves free and give him a few business contacts because he's been pretty good at his job over the years and he wants to reward him. By and large, in general, the mighty do not favor the lowly. The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the faults of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. He has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. In Rome, the rich and the powerful had gods who propped up their wealth and their power. In Palestine, in Judea, the people knew they needed a God who cared for the lowly. And that's exactly the sort of God who revealed himself in Jesus. His posture, God's posture, the Creator's posture, is a posture of other-oriented love towards those who are in need. When we get to Luke chapter 2, we discover that Jesus embodies that aspect of God's character. It's not just that God offers charity to the poor. It is that God in Christ stands in solidarity with the poor, with the lowly, with the weak, the powerless. Hear these words again. Paul, speaking of Jesus, says this, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. That way of speaking is telling, isn't it? You get two affirmations of the deity of Christ. He's in the form of God. Whatever it means to be God, Jesus participates in that. 
He is equal, equal with God. Whatever it means to be God, Jesus participates equally in that thing. And yet, He does not consider that participation as something to be taken advantage of or something to be exploited. Which, you've probably already begun to reflect on, is radically different from most of our postures. How can I take advantage of this situation? How can I work this out for my success? How can I manipulate things so that this goes well for me? So that I can get ahead? Who would have to step on? We don't usually talk about it quite that way. But I think you know what I mean. The human impulse is, what can I do to get ahead? The divine impulse is, I'm not going to take advantage of a status that actually is rightfully mine. That's the stunning thing about it is Jesus is God and he deserves all the glory that comes with that. Jesus is God and he deserves all of the acclaim that comes with that. He deserves all of the privilege that comes with that. He's the creator of all things. He's the judge of all things. He's enthroned over all things. Everyone, everything is accountable to him. And yet, instead of executing justice against the guilty, that's us. He looks upon the needs of the lowly and the poor. Again, that's us. He did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he lowered himself. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. So the one who's in the form of God, whatever it means to be God, he's got it. Takes on human likeness. The form of a slave. Lowliness. Humility. Poverty. All of the divine privilege. He steps into a manger. Instead of being attended by angels, he's now attended by shepherds. Jesus embodies this different way of being God. Jesus reveals this different way of being God. And he reveals it more thoroughly than we can imagine otherwise. He reveals it to the maximum capacity. The absolute fullness. When he dies on a cross. So if you think about this journey from the throne of heaven to the most humiliating death that a person can imagine. Death on a cross. We can't sentimentalize the manger without remembering that the manger is the start of a road that leads to a cross. Christmas is meaningless without Good Friday. 
No reason to put up a tree or bring out the lights or decorate anything for Christmas if we don't also get Good Friday and Easter. So this different way of being God, not looking with esteem on the power players, but looking with love on the lowly, it's testified to in the Scriptures when Christ is born, is embodied by Jesus throughout His life, and even in His death, most perfectly and fully in His death, the humility of God is embodied and enacted in Jesus in love for us. The humility of God is embodied and enacted in love in Christ for us. For our redemption, for our forgiveness, and for our transformation, for our formation. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His hands were stretched, his hands were pierced, his feet were pierced, his face was torn, his back was shredded. Taking the penalty and consequence of my transgressions, our transgressions on himself. The babe of Bethlehem is the man on the cross. And he is now the man enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus reveals both a different way of being God, a way that is marked and characterized by self-giving love, not self-aggrandizing, not self-seeking, but self-giving love. And he does it so that those who had resisted him and rebelled against him, namely us, could be redeemed and made whole. And that is the beauty of the Gospel. We are lowly. We are the poor. We are the poor in spirit. We are spiritually impoverished. We are rebels. We are far from Him, and in His kindness, He looks upon us in our lowly state and doesn't just throw scorn on us from heaven like a pagan deity would, but He condescends. He doesn't stand over and above us. He walks alongside and with us in kindness to bind up our broken hearts, to carry us. And the one who binds up our brokenness, who redeems our rebellion, who makes us whole, that one has been highly exalted. He has been given the name that is above every name. And at that name, every knee will bend in heaven, earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus reveals that the pathway to glory is not self-aggrandizement. The pathway to glory is not working out the details so that I can get ahead. The pathway to glory is self-giving love. And in His person, Jesus reveals both a different way of being God and a different way of being human. Not so that He can forgive our sins and leave us in the old way of being human, but so that He can redeem us into this new way of being human. 
Because the context of Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is not just Christology. It's not like Paul's like, hey, I want to tell you about the deity and humanity of Jesus. He does that, but that's not the point. The point comes up three verses before. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition, he says to the Philippians. They are on the verge of church faction, by the way. They've got some, let's call them the seeds of dispute happening within. We'll find out later on when you get to chapter 4, there's a couple of leaders who are in conflict, and Paul wants that resolved, because we all know that conflict is no good for churches. They're also getting persecuted from the outside, so you, when you've got conflict within and persecution from without, you can imagine that's a recipe for a broken, messed up church. So Paul wants to head that off at the pass. And so what does he do? He points him to Jesus, who suffered persecution and who looked not to his own interest, but to the interests of others. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, in lowliness, consider one another better than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not to your own interests. Brothers and sisters, that's radical. It's radical in the 21st century. It was radical in the 1st century. In the 1st century, they didn't pretend to praise lowliness. They didn't pretend to say, oh, look at this person who is so unselfish and lowly and humble. Nobody said things like that. It wasn't a compliment. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Radically countercultural in the ancient world and the present day. But this is what it means to be a human being made in the image of God. Jesus reveals a different way of being human so that we, he can give us a different... Let me get my bottom line the other way around. Jesus reveals a different way of being God so he can give us a different way of being human. God is humble. He does not seek his own interest. He looks out for the interest of others. And he demonstrates these aspects of his character by showing up in Jesus and bleeding to death for us. Look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Paul holds out the example of Jesus not as a unique ideal to be appreciated, but as an example to be followed. A character to be conformed to. Humility for the Christian is a chief feature of our identity. It should be. Paul is charting a course in which he is making humility essential to Christian identity. One of the ways you know identity is how we think about differences. Right? So my last name is this, not that. That's an aspect of my identity. My profession is this, not that. 
That's an aspect of my identity. I'm from this community, not that one. Those are, that's the way I talk about my identity, isn't it? We talk about the primary thing, if we're talking about identity, is distinction. What makes us different from them? And when Paul calls upon the Philippians and friends in Philippi, more than any other city in the ancient world outside of Rome, the Roman identity ran deep. You know what they called it? It sounds like a disease. Romanitis. <laughs> Hope you don't catch that one. But it was this sense of whatever's happening in Rome, it needs to happen here and more so. And this value of propping yourself up and making a deal to get ahead no matter who gets hurt or dies was a massive value. And for Paul to say to the Philippians, not so with you. That's their identity, not ours. We're not that kind of people. We're a different kind of people because we have a different kind of God. If you worship Zeus, take advantage of people. Your God and your character will correlate. If you worship Jesus, look not to your own interests. And so at both ends of Jesus' earthly life, you have thoroughgoing humility. The humility of the manger and the humility of the cross. And both of them reiterate, portray, characterize, proclaim, announce, amplify that aspect of the character of God who cares more about you than He does Himself. Because you don't bleed for people when you care more about your own interests than theirs. You only bleed for people that you love more than yourself. You only depart the throne of heaven to take up residence in a feeding trough when you care more about somebody else than you do yourself. Amen? Humility in the New Testament is an essential part of Christian identity. It is embodied by Jesus and commended by the, commanded by the apostles. The question for us then becomes, how do we cultivate this new way of being human? How do we cultivate? Because we don't get this, like, <laughs> we, this doesn't come naturally for us, does it? Like, all we have to do is think about childhood. And childhood is frequently, that's mine. I'll get my way. All the parents are saying, amen. And we're exhausted. <laughs> this this, this self-orientation comes naturally. Humility doesn't come naturally. We don't naturally seek the best of the other. We don't naturally look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We need to be transformed. It needs to be changed. Jesus came to rescue us from our sin and corruption, to bring us into a new experience life. He says, he got, Paul says in, the next, in his next breath after the Christ hymn, that your salva the salvation that Christ has purchased for you has to be worked out in your life. So how do we work it out? How do we cultivate it? There's a different way to be human. How do we live that life? In the Methodist tradition, that, that question gets answered in two ways. And they are essential. We don't get to dispense of them. This is straight out of John Wesley. 
for the Christian disciple. There are certain works and practices that cultivate other-oriented love. Because they cultivate an experience of God's love for us. And as we experience God's love for us, our love for others is cultivated and magnified and amplified. Wesley said those involve two different sorts of works. He called them works of piety and works of mercy. Piety, think like worship. Mercy, think like ministry outside the walls. Maybe we can even think about piety as ministry inside these walls and mercy as ministry outside these walls. So for Wesley, works of piety involved the obvious things like reading your Bible and praying and serving in the church, whether it's the welcoming team or the folks who take the trash out when it's over, or stack the chairs, or read the Advent reading. Like there are gifts of ourselves to the church for the building up of ourselves and the body and all of us together in the image of Christ. And when we give ourselves for the sake of others, guess what it does? It reinforces in us this look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. So every day, if I'm consistently putting these practices in, right? If I prioritize God over myself by reading my Bible instead of reading the sports page, I know that's a big sacrifice, I know. Other-oriented love, self-giving love, self-sacrificing love. So I put those practices in towards God, piety in worship to Him for the sake of His church. It cultivates humility. And a lot of us, we do okay with that. Not sure we always do okay with the works of mercy part. For Wesley, works of mercy involve things like caring for the sick, prison ministry. For Wesley, like if you weren't like ministering with the imprisoned, you're not a Methodist. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> Care for the poor. Wesley fought for the abolition of slavery because he believed that Christians had to be committed to works of mercy. He worked for a more just society in that way. This is the reason that we partner with ministries like Friendship Mission and First Choice. To care for those who are poor, who won't have anything to eat, we don't have anywhere to sleep. To speak up for those who have no, bo no voice like the children inside their mother's wombs. To care for men and women who feel like they don't have options or choices. To make sure they have diapers and onesies, and wipes, and a community. In our tradition, those kinds of things aren't a nice bonus if you have time. For Wesley, for Wesley, if you weren't engaged in those sorts of ministries, you're not a Christian. That's probably offensive. 
let me put an exclamation point behind it. Because we treat Christianity like it's this transaction. You get saved when you're a kid or a teenager or maybe an adult. And you're good. Everything's fine. Live your life. Do what you want. The heaven box is ticked. You have the membership card. And that's important. Conversion is essential. The people called Methodists cared about that. We do care about that. But even more for Wesley, then what has God done in your life is the question, what is God doing in your life today? And how is the character of Christ being reproduced in your life today? And how is the humility of Christ being cultivated in your life today? And that happens through these works of mercy. Where we, even if we don't feel like it, and this is the thing, right? It would be massively inconvenient to go and serve at the soup kitchen. Or it would be massively inconvenient to give up four hours a week and go answer the phones at a pregnancy resource center. That, like, I just don't have time for that. Our tradition answers that question saying, you don't, ha you don't not have time for it. Because these are the things that make you a Christian. These are the things that make you like Jesus. These are the things, right? When you have to say, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Those are the moments where the character of Jesus is being cultivated in our lives. I don't want to do it, but I will anyway. Because I belong to the one who emptied himself and took the form of a slave and became obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't want to do it, but I'll do it anyway because I belong to the one who left the throne of heaven and emptied himself and took up residence in a manger. You want to cultivate humility? You want to cultivate the character of Christ? You actually have to say no to yourself sometimes. <laughs> and we live in a world that says, yes, 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 yes. If it feels good, do it. If you want it, get it. But we follow a Lord who says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus reveals a different way of being God so that he can give us a different way to be human. And the world is ripping itself apart for lack of this way of being human. American politics is ripping itself apart. I don't care which party you're affiliated with. Both of them are consumed with themselves and their platforms and not the greater good of our society. Everyone has an agenda. And now because of the internet, everyone has a platform and a voice. And it turns out we click on the platforms and the voices that get angry. And so social media feeds those to us more frequently than the others. If you haven't read that study, it came out a couple months ago. So there are forces out there that are straight up doing their absolute level artificial intelligence best to cultivate anger, self-oriented frustration and fury and all of these things. I don't like you. 
I don't want to be around you. You're not like me. You don't believe the same things I believe. But we have a Lord who looks at us in our fallenness, in our rebellion, and says, I want to be near you. I want to behold you. I want to reconcile you. I want to redeem you. And I want to reproduce my life, my wholeness, my character in you. The question for us, the question for us, is whether we want to be human the way Jesus reveals it. Because it's hard. Crucified Savior, not the best PR program. Take up your cross and follow me. Doesn't play well on social media. But it's the gospel. There's a different way to be human. And it doesn't look like what we find in the media. It doesn't look like the flashy lights and the hair and the makeup and the big platforms and the studios and the sets and the halls of politics. It doesn't look like that's not glory. Glory looks like a manger. In God's economy, glory comes after lowliness. Glory comes with humility. This is what it means to be truly God. This is what it means truly human. The question is, do you want to be human or not? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.